Hey, Scott. How are you doing today? Living the dream. As usual. We are back from our big banger and Bangor trip, and you know what the very first thing we need to record is? Uh, ad reads. Ad reads, and talking about our good friends over at Lumi Labs. You know them. You love them. You should be very well familiar with our sponsor by this point. You know Lumi Labs. They're the people who champion little thing called microdosing. That's right. We're talking about taking a little THC gummy throughout the day that will keep you mellow, but not floating in the clouds like some late career Beatles song. Uh, for me, these gummies have been a huge godsend. I've spoken a lot about my trouble getting to sleep. Uh, and I've been popping a gummy at bedtime, and it has been extremely helpful in keeping me off of my vampiric schedule. This product's aimed at keeping you relaxed, and it works, trust me. The best part is Lumi's THC gummies are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com, and if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. That's right. Free shipping and 30% off if you use the code KINGCAST at microdose.com. It's a really good deal, folks. And also, for those of you who are potheads out there and know your shit, they use D9 rather than D8. Uh, D9 is way better, Uh, way smoother, won't give you a hangover in the morning. Um, And also, I am here to do a little ad read for our our friends over at Wood Rocket and NeatoCode.net. Uh, have you smoked too much weed? Is your trip way too trippy? Have you, in fact, bitten off more edibles than you can chew? Well, have I got the book for you. Are You Too High is the new book by Brian Box Brown, the comic book artist and author behind many graphic novels, including the New York Times bestselling Andre the Giant, Life and Legend. Are You Too High is a hilarious and delightful guide that may help you or your distressed friends stop freaking out, or at the very least make you laugh until smoke comes out of your nose. Are You Too High is in stores now, uh, makes a great stocking stuffer. For the upcoming holiday season, I have not seen. Um, wait, yeah, I have seen a physical copy of this book. You can get it into a stocking. Don't worry about that, folks. You'll get it <laughs> in a stocking. Um, makes a great, uh, you know, gift for your stoner buddy or a stocking stuffer. Whatever the case may be, you can find it on Amazon or at neatoco.net. That is n e a t o c o dot net. It just struck me, Scott, that those two ad reads are very complimentary towards each other. Pop yes. a Lumi and read this book. That's very true. It's what they call synergy, baby. Mm -hmm. Corporate synergy. We love (laughs) to see it. Speaking of corporate synergy and overlords, guess what? It's time for me to talk to you about Fangoria. Yay, Fangoria. Oh, I love corporate synergies. Oh, my fucking nipples (laughs) are hard. It's your favorite. Yeah, go for it. This classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. Not only is Fangoria highly collectible, if you get yourself an annual subscription, it comes straight to your front door four times a year, and each issue is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future, with all of the most exciting journalists, filmmakers, and horror know-it-alls to guide the way, including your intrepid KingCast host. That reminds me, I need to get on, and my deadline's coming up for the next issue. Mm-mm. Shit, I better fucking get right, and... This high-quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, so if you want to join in on the fun, well, you'll need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your order. Now, with all of that said, and it's been a lot, let's get on with the show, please. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice 
is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Uh, listeners, this week's guest is a certified legend. He is the prolific author of dozens of novels, novellas, and short stories whose titles and covers have captured the imagination of the entire world, including Space Raptor Butt Invasion, Pounded by President Bigfoot, and Pounded in the Butt by My Own Butt. He's also the host of the recent My Friend Chuck podcast and a man who, above all else, understands that love is real. But today he's here to join the King Cast Buckaroos on a trot through Stephen King's recent collection of novellas, If It Bleeds. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the King Cast stage, Mr. Chuck Tingle. Chuck, how you doing today? Wow, I am doing so dang well. Well, first of all, what a kind introduction. Oh, I thank uh, you. Second of all, um, I'm just so excited to be here uh, because um, I, I, I've really been uh, looking forward to this. I've been really thinking a lot about Stephen King. I've been listening to uh, your show, and um, I, I, I'm on the edge of my dang seat right now. So it is an honor <laughs> to be. It is a dang honor to be here, really. Um, well, the honor is, is all ours. Uh, your your legend precedes you. You are. You know, you've been you've been at it for a while now, and uh, people people love you, Chuck. I, I'm a big get for this show. Let's, <laughs> yes. be, re- let's be real. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I think that um, you know some of what gets lost about you in in translation with like would be readers or something is that they see the covers to your novels or they read the titles and they assume that you know this is all some sort of uh, prank or put on. And I, uh, and I don't think that's the case. I think you actually have some shit to say, wouldn't you? I wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yes. I think I think uh, not only do I agree, I think that's kind of the the key to it all. Um, I, I'm always artistically um, been interested in a sort of um, the dichotomy between highbrow and lowbrow, which, I, to be honest, I don't even really think exists. And and part of that, I I do like to play with that, uh, and and I I really do as an artist, I enjoy being in the position of um of uh, seeming like an underdog, and then when you crack it open, you think, oh wow, this is um this is really good. I, I actually I, I've been thinking about this lately. It's almost like a a reverse uh, a reverse joke. It seems like the joke for a long time was um. Here's this thing uh, that uh, that everyone likes. I'm going to call it bad, and and I find that kind of um cynical. Uh, mm-hmm. What I like to do is uh, say, um, here's this thing that everyone is kind of skeptical of, giving it the old side eye, and then you crack it open and you say, "Wow, that's really good." So, um, as far as uh, the setup and the surprise, um, I I really enjoy coming at it from that angle, and I think it's more inclusive that way because you think, yes. "Oh, okay, everyone can be involved in this." Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. For for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, do you, do you have a, a title that's like a particular starting place that you recommend to newcomers? Oh, wow. or? I mean, the dang tingle verse is pretty dang vast. There's about 400 books at this point. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And, but uh, I would say... Um, if you are interested in um, erotica uh, and, and I would... Say, Call it maybe uh, B 
because it's uh, based on timelines near this one, maybe surrealist uh, erotica or, or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, find something that you find uh, attractive or arousing, or, or even if it's just too strange for you, think, oh, that kind of uh, is maybe a part of my uh, deep brain I'd like to explore. And within <laughs> those those Tingler titles, you're gonna you're definitely gonna find something. Um, especially uh, to the queer buckaroos listening, I, I have. Um, uh, gay, bi, lesbian, uh, trans, uh, asexual. Uh, I have all kinds of stories. So if there's something in that that you, you relate to, it's important to me um, that the tingle verse is uh, kind of welcoming uh, across that spectrum. But uh, specifically for this uh, podcast, I would say... Um, well, I have a. I've just recently started writing horror novels. So I I, yes. I started with a novella called Straight. That's um, that's about a world where um, uh, suddenly all cis straight people kind of just uh, go a little uh, bananas, uh, <laughs> and it is up to the uh, queer buckaroos uh, in a in a cabin to uh, fend for themselves. Uh, and then um, uh, recently signed a, a very exciting uh, publishing deal for um, full-length novels with Nightfire, which is part of Tor. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I have a book uh, for pre-order called Camp Damascus that I would say is a, a queer um, deconstruction of the demonic possession genre that takes place at a conversion therapy camp. Um, it is, uh, takes the tropes you would expect from a possession story and I think kind of turns them on their head. So I would say for this uh, uh, podcast, uh, look into Chuck's horror offerings you might enjoy. Uh, we've had another guest who's written stuff, uh, Stephen Graham Jones, and it seems like like his angle on that uh, on his work is to take those familiar horror tropes and uh, inject a slight diversity and turn it on its head, and, and turn which also defies expectation when you know you're reading it e- even as a you know a cis straight white guy like me, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, isn't that the point of, uh, of storytelling and of art right. to, uh, to create that empathy and say, Oh, wow. You know, this, this is a perspective. that's a kind of exciting for me that I don't get to hear every day. Right. So that, that's great. And I've actually, um, I've heard very good things about him. I've not read yeah. any of his, of his books, but dang, um, no, what, he's great. what is the big, what is the big, big new book that that uh, of his my heart is a chainsaw i think was the yeah there's a sequel coming out out. yeah there's a sequel coming out early next year he also wrote uh um, the only good indians which is another great one okay so i i it's funny because i've just heard such good things and then you know when i'm used to self-publishing now the big time publisher so they're there's all kinds of uh, marketing departments and things, and I have seen um, Camp Damascus, my my, my new book that uh, that you can pre-order, the one I was just talking about. Um, someone in the the uh, the advertising said, "If you like the My Heart Is a Chainsaw, uh, you will like Camp <laughs> Damascus." So I, I guess I might have something to do with uh, this book. I've not read it, but I've heard it's really good. I feel like you and Stephen, who's been on the show several times, I feel like y'all would okay. get along very well. Oh He's, yes, uh, okay. Very good dude. Very good dude. Um, I would like to talk to you very briefly about erotica. Uh, this oh, yes. is tra- like I had never in my life read erotica until maybe. I don't know. Earlier this year, a friend of mine oh, rec- wow. recommended a book that. Welcome. She told me, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to tell you, Chuck, I feel like I've been wasting a lot of time. You know, um, it it's a fun genre. That's for sure. It is like I always figured. Well, 
if I'm looking to get horny, I can just I can I can watch pornography or I can, you know, uh, have relations with with a, a, a partner or yeah. you know, think wh- about whatever. the text. Yeah. text-based. It seemed like there were way easier ways to accomplish this and scratch that itch than by reading a whole ass book. And I was yes. very, very wrong about this. It is yes. it's like flexing a new uh horny muscle. And what I yeah, have, yes. and what I have discovered is that the, the the vast majority of my female friends read erotica. None of my guy friends do. And I'm curious yes. if you have a theory as to why men including me because i stayed away for a long time might not be as as prone to reading erotica as as uh, i I know that's a good i I think um that i think i could probably uh, we we can we're gonna have to make this a two-part episode i'm gonna get too deep (laughs) into that but but um i will say yes it, it is true um there, there are more women uh, erotica readers um, uh, in general. I would say I don't necessarily know if, if I could necessarily deconstruct that. But one thing that I have learned from writing it uh, is that if, if uh, a sexual interest of a, of a buckaroo uh, is, um, I think, more um, story-based, more emotional, I would say visual pornography, while there is all kinds I think it doesn't necessarily um, dive in very deep very often to that. It, it's just not sure. an art form that really functions that way very often. Now, there, there are some. I don't want to dismiss the whole thing. But um, I would say if your particular uh, thing that kind of pushes your buttons um, has to do with a sort of a dynamic between a partner or an emotional thing that you can't just show by throwing on, you know, a, sexy doctor or nurse costume or something like that. <laughs> right. if, if, the, if the story goes a little deeper, um, then you're going to um, really appreciate the text of that because what's, uh, what's the turn on there is, uh, mm-hmm. is something that I think uh, can't necessarily just be visually shown. It has to come out through story. So gotcha. it, it opens itself up to very specific I guess I will say fetishes, but really just kind of um, interests in that regard. And then also um, to spin off on that, I think that um, your appreciation of this uh, art form and something that I I really like about erotica and why I like horror is I kind of see um, erotica, comedy, and horror um, as kind of a a trinity of genre that I uh, really uh, find interesting and means a lot to me. Because I think that those are um, genres that are dismissed as kind of lowbrow, like I was talking about, uh, because they are eliciting a visceral reaction. They, mm-hmm. they are, they are um, you can say, uh, erotica or romance is supposed to uh, turn you dang on. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we all know what comes with that. Horror uh, is uh, trying to elicit an instinctual, um, either uh, like a scream or a clenching in fear. Uh, and then a comedy is trying to elicit a laugh. And these are all kind of bodily reactions. So yes. I kind of think that um, these three genres, maybe my interest in them is because they are, I think, kind of unfairly maligned in this way. It's not thoughtful, not not deeper brain. And what I like to do with my writing in both horror and erotica is say, um, actually, um, I think you can go even deeper here because um, it's kind of more primal in a way. You're, you're going, you're tapping right in the source. And that's kind of why I like to play there. I think you're right. And 
I've had this exact conversation before, minus the erotica part, that comedy and horror are flip sides of the same coin. Yes, yes. What is a jump scare, if not a punchline, et cetera, et cetera. But you're right. Like, erotica does fit very neatly into that little little theory. That might be a little triumvirate there. Yeah, yes, yes. It, and, and honestly, once you start thinking about it that way, you just see it so mm. much. But it, like I was saying about the kind of reverse joke of not being taken seriously and then, oh, it's great. I, that is just such a great – that in itself is almost a jump scare or a punchline uh, in a sort of fourth <laughs> right. wall-breaking way. You can crack open this book expecting one thing and then, wow, does it pack a wallop if, if you don't see it coming <laughs> and you, you just take it for, uh, take it for granted. Totally. Mm. Uh, Eric, have you read any erotica by any chance? No, not not that I can think of. But you know, you guys talking about this definitely triggers some some like uh, memories of of reading like sexier stuff. You know, whether it's in Stephen King or Crichton didn't have a whole lot of sex stuff in his in his books. It was a lot more scientific based. Not but, a very uh, horny man, that Michael Crichton. Yeah, if he was, he didn't throw it throw it up on Maine for sure. Um, but uh but yeah i mean there there there's something different about being turned on by you know uh characters that you've gotten to know or some you know what i mean there's there's just yeah. a little thing I, I remember that that feeling of like like oh holy shit like is is it like turning me on that i'm reading this stuff now like as a 15 16 year old reading stuff that isn't basically erotica and it it, it taps into a different kind of horniness i guess than yes uh, than pornography which is exactly what your point is you i don't know i guess this is all a long way of me saying that uh i think you guys are on to something and maybe uh maybe i need to jump on the train well, yeah. well combined combined with um uh another genre too uh just allowing sexuality to be in in your story and in your art i, I think places <laughs> it in a in a level of realism that um for horror can be very effective. Um, it's like when you're watching a dang movie and you think, uh, do any of these characters ever use the bathroom? Because uh, it seems <laughs> like this world exists without restrooms. Um, and, and you kind of, in the back of your mind, you always know it's kind of a, it's, it's a movie or it's a book or anything because these, uh, we are, we have cut out a lot for the sake of story and time. And when you allow, um, I guess that's kind of an argument for nudity in movies too, is that, you know, but when after uh, buckaroos are done having a good pound, they're not necessarily pulling the blankets <laughs> all the way up to their necks so they can talk and get a PG 13 rating. Right. So, so in, in, in art, I think that especially in horror where part of it has to do with you really believing that it's real and caring about the characters. Um, if they are allowed to be um, sexual, not in a gratuitous way, but just in a, we are human beings that exist. And that, right. that's a big, it's a big part of being human. Um, I think that can be very effective in just um, placing you in, in the reality of the situation. Right. Uh, yeah, there is there is something about that, the, just the the casual nudity, which happens after you've been intimate with somebody, because then it's like, what, well, what's there to hide anymore. Right. And and like, and I remember, you know, I know this is going to be a weird parallel here, but I remember clocking that in something like Pulp Fiction, where there's that scene where Bruce Willis and, and, uh, 
his his bow you know they oh, yes. they go down on each other or whatever and uh, you don't really see and it. it's not graphic at all but then the next thing you see is that, like just that next morning she's brushing her teeth he's in the shower and fucking toweling off and you know his thing he's flopping around and it's just whatever you know it's just like a they're just existing they're just existing yes. together which anybody that's ever been in a relationship you know knows that you know, it's like, oh my god! The early parts, you're like, oh, they're gonna see me naked, or they're gonna judge me. I'm gonna see them naked. What is that gonna be like? And then that quickly goes to, all right, now I'm just getting in the shower. You brush your teeth and right. whatever, and, and it's yeah. just it's just casual, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That all that all settles into place once the smashing has has completed. <laughs> yes. You know, post smash. Yes. Don't even get me started on that dang Pulp Fiction scene, though, because um, that that. We could do a whole podcast about how that is the strangest. Um, I do not understand why that was a necessary 20 minute break in the middle of that film It is cinematically one of the strangest uh, scenes in history. I don't know. I, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but you're watching Pulp Fiction and all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. And then there is this uh, unrelated situation that yes is done nice and realistic but i man does that scene take the wind out of my sails when i'm watching well it's it's very awkward it's kind of like vincent and jules talking about you know burgers and shit on the way to the hit like it doesn't does it need to be there no but it's it's informing the audience of the characters and their their inner lives and what have you and i i I think it serves i i think it serves (laughs) the same function it's you know, by that to that point, we've only met um uh fuck what Butch. We've only Butch. met Butch like once. Butch. Very Butch. Okay. Uh, very so the briefly. argument is that we're this is a, a brief moment for us to uh kind of sympathize with him as a character and get on his team. This is yeah. his save the cat, this yeah, is him, save the cat moment. Yeah, him and Fabian. Like now now we have Fabian. stakes. We've met these characters, we've spent a few minutes with them the while they're being very intimate with one another. I think at that point you now you're rooting for him. You want these two to get out of town with the money or whatever the fuck it was. Wow. Right. You are the first person I've ever brought this up to that has uh, argued for this scene. <laughs> and I'm gonna say I, I appreciate I really uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna switch switch sides. I'm gonna go with you on this one. That's a that's a very good point. I, I understand why you can bounce off of it though, because there's this the, the theatricality of the earlier dialogue is really like done in a cool way, and but the the bedroom talk is in Pulp Fiction is a little off you know where you know she they're speaking in ways that like human people don't speak to each other right so like will you give me oral pleasure you know it's like like nobody like i i don't foresee a situation in which i'm with my partner and and you know her saying that to me that way you know and then he responds with will you kiss it you know it's like it's 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 weird it's not really like sexy bedroom talk but it's (laughs) kind of that way (laughs) It's 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 weird, but it you know, but the theatricality of it and the uh, surrealness of it fits with the surrealness of all the other stories. It's just you know, it's just jarring because I guess we're more conditioned for That's bedroom true. talk to either be expertly perfectly sexy written or you know, or the perfect like teenager fumbly wow. you know awkward part. Now, right? now so. that you're uh, now that you're describing and retelling, I'm seeing. That scene is sort of David Lynchian, and uh, <laughs> and now I really like it. Yeah, right. keep all of this in mind next time you watch it and see if it doesn't flow a little it's, better for you. Those yes. those those sequences like that, I think that's what separates Tarantino apart from well, like for instance, 
the bazillion Tarantino knockoffs right. that followed in the wake of Pulp Fiction. They crucially did not contain scenes like that. And we're just like trying to just after the cool part of it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm fully on your team now. This is, a, this is <laughs> exciting. I've, I've already grown so much in the course of this podcast. Who knows what, where, where we might go from here, but yes. uh, I will, I, I, I know where we can start mm. and that's uh, what is, what is your Stephen King origin story, Chuck? Okay. Well, um, I, I will say, uh, I am not sure. Stephen King is so ubiquitous. Maybe this has come up. Um, it's kind of hard to say the very first time that mm-hmm. I, I was aware because of the movies. Just every, like, I don't even know if I know um, the first time I saw Stephen King, but the first time it really hit me and that I remember. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, Chuck, uh, my, my way is is kind of a mystery, uh, as I guess we could talk about the podcast. I'm a mysterious, secretive kind of guy. Uh, and I don't talk about the time in my life when, uh, before I, I uh, started writing. But mm-hmm. then I, I was trotting around the country for a while. I was uh, first in, in Utah. And then I, I kind of went on the road. I could write a whole dang book about just um, hitching rides and uh, living, uh, living across the dang America. And um, during this time... Uh, spent a lot of time just kind of hanging out where I could. And I actually remember um, this, maybe the younger buckaroos don't realize this, but at places like donut shops, um, mm-hmm. they would just have uh, arcade machines. And I remember uh, as a teenage uh, Chuck, um, that there was a, a dang donut shop. I would trot around and, uh, and hang out at, and there was a dang arcade machine. And and, uh, and uh, I found just sitting at the table um, copy of um, Tommy Knockers, and I <laughs> uh, and I read it. Well, and, uh, I, and, and you I continued know, on. <laughs> yes. Well, here's another interesting thing because we talked about this a bit. I really liked Tommy Knockers. Mm. I have not reread it, but um, I think maybe because it was my first. Stephen King experience. I didn't really know what to compare it to. <laughs> right. So I didn't know. Oh wow, this is definitely not it. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I, I just, I, it was really, um, it was just so uh, neat. And um, I think my kind of theory on um, Stephen King and his writing style that we can maybe get in deeper on, and maybe you agree, is I feel like. Um, the way that he writes, it's so full of um, folksy kind of detail that kind of meanders around. And 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 as a as a reader, I actually don't generally like that that much. I'm I really like really streamlined uh, stuff. And for some reason, Stephen King gets away with it because you kind of just exist in the book for a while. And mm-hmm. I I describe it as. I don't really, I can't remember anything about Tommy Knockers really now, but I remember um, my life while I was reading it. I remember uh-huh. that time. It's like when you read a Stephen King book, it, it connects you to like a month of your life where it just is so vivid and it kind of serves as like a soundtrack to your memories. Um, 100%. Then, do you have, yes. Do you have experiences like that? Because they're so big. You just let them wash over you. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And I was just funnily enough, I was just at uh, uh, Universal with my uh, girlfriend and she 
was mentioning rides as we were waiting in line because she's a big Universal fan. And she was mentioning reading King books in line going like, yep, I remember this line because I was reading this and I was reading, wow. you know, Salem's Lot while I was in, in here. So I'm like, I, I always associate this line with this book. And, uh, you know, and I have that too. I have memories of, of sitting like, not just like, they're, they're not like fully formed, you know, crystal clear. I was going from, I remember what I was doing right before, right after, but I remember instant, like very detailed flashes of what the trees and the colors of the leaves, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, sitting in my like uh, middle school, uh, like outdoor courtyard during lunch reading Christine, you know, yes. and for the first time. And, and, you know, Christine's not one of my favorite of his classics, but like, it's not that there's any need for me to rem- like to have that. It's not like that was a big moment in my life. It was just for whatever reason, like that extremely detailed, like I can even like picture kids, you know, and yeah. what they were wearing. And like, I don't know why, but it's just like burned into my, my memory, you know, reading, Christine in that courtyard, you know, at that moment. And, uh, you know, I don't know what that is. Maybe there's psychologists that are, that listen to the show that can, can, uh, I mean, that's his super, that's his superpower really as, as an author. I think that that is where he really hits his stride because Mm -hmm. like I said, that's not even something I do not like, um, overly, uh, I'm so streamlined when I write and when I read and for some reason, he just gets a pass uh, with that because you just you kind of buckle in and you think, okay, I'm gonna be going through this. I, I think the the subjects he chooses to, uh, uh, and obviously being in Maine a lot of the time, mm-hmm. there is a already a built in nostalgia, even if you don't have it. So that kind of uh, helps uh, to to connect that feeling. But sure. I agree. I, I just remember sitting in that dang donut shop. I would come back uh, <laughs> on other days. I, I took the book, but I would still read it there. I think maybe I thought, oh, maybe someone's going to dang run into me and say, oh, that's my book. And I could say, oh, good. I'm going to hold on to it for you. But no, no one ever came back for it. I don't know if that. I don't know if that's a good review of Tommy Knocker, but nobody ever came back for it. But um, I, I just, I have such a vivid, it, it, it's such a meaningful uh, memory to me. So I just, right. I really strongly remember that. And then I also, of course, um, remember, this, here's going to be a theme. I'm going to throw out another thing that I remember, and you're both going to say, wow, that is not a very good uh, Stephen King book. I'm going to say, I loved it. Uh <laughs> But uh, I I remember seeing um, Maximum Overdrive called oh, no. thing late late night TV and I oh my gosh I love that movie I you're in you're in movie. good company we're both okay, Maximum good. Overdrive okay. fans mm-hmm. yeah wow what a that is um there's a certain type of movie that doesn't exist anymore and um, a younger Buckaroos probably won't know about this either but um if you're a little older back when when then cable was a thing. Things like um like AMC before they were doing dang Mad Men or <laughs> TNT and all these networks, um, there was a type of movie that um it was just the the epitome of that type of movie on at like eleven o'clock at night and um, a very highly edited and it would always be kind of a B horror movie. Um, pretty good. I mean, Tremors is also another example of one of those. They just every night they were playing it. Maximum Overdrive was one of those, and boy, what a treat! I, I enjoyed that so much. I saw that mm. one when I was a kid, and I, I think I've told this story on the show before. But when I saw it as a kid, it was or maybe not a kid, but like a teenager, you know. And so I was sort of, you know, doing that disaffected teenager thing of like, oh, this movie is trash, and 
you know, all I had known about it before then was that it was alleged to be like a real train wreck of a movie and yes. a lot of problems with the production. And um, over time, and especially while during the show, we've we've had to revisit Maximum Overdrive on a number of occasions. And I like that fucking thing more every time I I see it. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. It's so fun. It is a it is. very. Oh, my God. And I, yeah. when I saw it, I did not. I did not have the history, but I didn't know that it wasn't supposed to be good. So later on, when, <laughs> when I heard from someone else that, that they didn't like it, I thought, are we, are we talking about the same movie with the, the dang vending machine shooting the, the, <laughs> the sodas at people? That's not good. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yes, apparently it's not as enjoyed as I liked it. Well, he, here's the thing about Maximum Overdrive. I've since seen seeing it, I've seen so many movies from first time filmmakers or, uh, you know, young new green directors that, uh, that just don't understand cinematic language, you know? And I think that King, it's kind of hard to argue that the, you know, that King's up there with Hitchcock, you know, he, he, as a director, he's absolutely not, but he understood cinematic language, or at least his support system, you know, kept him on the straight and narrow there is DP or producing team or whatever. Uh, to the point where, you know, you have this weird thing where it's somebody who's making his first movie with a professional team and somebody who's used to having full creative story control over everything he does. So that movie's fucking weird. Like there's, it's, it's unlike kind of anything else in that sphere. It, it swings for the fences in odd spots. It pulls back in odd spots. It has no ending. It's it's such a like no like climax to the to the movie, right? It's just they get to the boat and that, that's it. You know, yes. it's like the, yes. the climax is shooting one rocket in, into a into a truck. You know, it's like which we've seen at that point like four times, you know? Yes, there, yes. there is no escalation. So but it's but it's still a satisfying movie. Like, I don't know. I think I, I become more and more fascinated with Maximum Overdrive. And I've always loved it, even as as a kid. But, like, the more movies you watch where people don't know what the fuck they're doing uh, and making something mediocre and dull and boring and, and just like everything else and trying to make a good movie by just repeating something that, that they think that they like. You know, I don't know. That movie has a lot of personality, which goes a long way for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, Absolutely. Part of understanding, part of embracing Maximum Overdrive is understanding that it's coming at horror from, you know, that that EC Comics level of horror, you know, where it's a right. little campy and it's it's kind of goofy. And, you know, we, something we've talked about on the show before is that we suspect that that is the particular flavor of horror that Stephen King responds most strongly to in his own entertainment don't know if right. that's true, but I mean, there is evidence for that based on, you know, the things that he has recommended or the fact that he made a movie like Maximum Overdrive huh. or Creepshow, which is yep. very easy. Yep. Um, you uh, you still haven't read Dance Macabre, right, Scott? I have not. No. That will totally underline your your uh, your uh, theory there, because, you know, all the stuff that he grew up watching were all like uh, the kind of stuff that J- Joe Dante was making a tribute to. And sure. Uh, uh, in matinee, you know, he grew up watching those 50s William Castle and shit, William Castle shit. And yeah, yeah, the the them and the fly and, you know, like all that stuff was was his bread and butter when he was, you know, a young, <laughs> a young uh, lad with uh, big glasses. Yeah, hmm. it's all coming together. Very nice. All I, coming I, together. I don't know if um, I'm going to throw out a, a real hot take about Maximum Overdrive. I don't know if you've covered this, but um, have you ever um kind of seen it through the lens of um 
This is, uh, at the time, uh, Stephen King's uh, zombie film. I- I've always seen hmm. it as that. Um, uh, based on, I feel like the zombie film uh, thing is, um, uh, it's always some kind of thing in space just happens. Night right. living dead. <laughs> oh, there's a comet going by. And, 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 you, and it's a worldwide problem that can never be solved. And right. so really, as a storyteller, you have to focus on a group of survivors and how they're going to get out of the house or the situation yeah. because because there's no um there's no big re- they're not going to turn around the comet uh, and then the <laughs> other thing is I feel like Stephen King likes to have themes of um where does the body end with technology obviously not as much as say you know David Cronenberg or anything <laughs> right. like that but he does like to talk about things like okay um. Well, this is going to be a zombie movie, but instead of our bodies losing control of our bodies, we're going to lose control of our technology, which is an extension of our bodies. Hmm. Um, so I have always kind of seen it as a sort of um, attempt at like a at like a B zombie movie from him. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely that Night of the Living Dead format it where survivors barricade themselves into one area and and uh, it's more like out the dang the plot beats of it seem to be laid sure. over from sort of naive living then. But anyway, I thought I'd mention that because we're talking about big swings. And so yeah. that is my, my big swing of a take on, uh, yeah. on, well, uh, Matthew. can't wait for the comments to come in on this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also curious because he doesn't really do zombies a lot. He has that one short story, which takes place like what, 20 years after a zombie, apocalypse mm, yes. i always forget the title of that that story uh but it's a really cool one because they're like on an i on an island right and uh how to how to like figure out uh you know everybody mm-hmm. like has to draw straws or whatever to to go and clean up the zombie shit or whatever it's um uh that one's pretty good uh and then cell i guess is his other one yes. where yeah. he, he kind of tackles the zombie thing but he doesn't, he doesn't can... touch zombies a lot which is no which is interesting doesn't. for somebody who's put out you know a library full of books and short stories. He doesn't stories. touch. Uh, he doesn't touch the. I think the zombie genre, especially because I said I, I wrote straight, and that was this sort of um, a, a twist on the zombie genre. Right. Is kind of what I just laid out with the maximum. Over you have your survivors. Mm-hmm. They hole up and then they kind of escape, and the worldwide change you can't affect. Um, Stephen King. He does touch on zombies sometimes, but not in the zombie uh, zombie genre. Um, I think genre is a good good term. Yeah, Um, the genre. Pet Cemetery is a zombie movie for sure, or or, uh, book uh, and and movie, but it's just not hitting all the usual tropes. It's a right. They don't act like the zombies we know. Yeah, no, no. But uh, you know, Gage is is pretty clearly a zombie. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it is, uh, he just, I guess he doesn't come at it from the traditional, uh, story beats. Now, well, speaking yeah. of you taking big swings, the title oh, you boy. brought us today is if it bleeds a, a, one of King's more recent collections, I think his most recent collection It's, mm-hmm. it's four novellas. Um, the first one is, uh, Mr. Harrigan's phone. Second one is life of Chuck. Uh, third one is if it bleeds and the fourth one is rat. Uh, this one came out in 2020, like right about when the pandemic started. Um, yes. and, and, uh, right about when our show launched, by the way, I that's think this true. came out within like a week of our show launching. That's it's close. It came out in April and I think we were in May, but it was mm. within that corridor for sure. 
Um, and what you told me, Chuck, before um, we recorded this is if you wanted If It Bleeds, not only because no one else had touched it on the show before, but also you have a, uh, a unifying theory about how the stories in this book are interconnected. And uh, yes, yes. we're very curious to 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 hear you lay that out. Well, you are right to set this up. That is going to be a big swing because because it, it is. <laughs> I, I initially um, I I had heard good things about um, if it bleeds, um, but initially when I was thinking of what I wanted to do, I thought it would be funny to do uh, the life of Chuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as, right. And so I started as I a Chuck. Read that. Yes, and so I just read that. Uh, I just read that story. Uh, and I hadn't read the collection and I was like, oh, this is really, I really, really liked it. Um, and then I just kept reading it. And, um, as it went, I read all four and then I, I asked, oh, can, can we just do all four? Because I, I noticed them. I, I think that there are two connections. One I think is kind of obvious in the text. Um, that's, I don't know if it has any meaning. It's just a sort of through line through, through all the stories, um, and then my second one is the bigger swing about, um, I think, what Stephen King is kind of trying to do with this collection and, and say. Um, mm. so I, I will start with the first one that I think is is kind of more obvious. I, in format, when you do collections, do you like to jump on? Because I'm just going to talk about a, a brief thing about all four stories, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Sure. Floor is yours. So the interesting thing um, about all all four stories, um, and I'm going to go through each one. Um, Mr. Harrigan's phone is about you know this um, older man who is a luddite, and he he is not connected to the internet. And when he get, connects through this phone, he realizes um, how much there is. And a lot of this story is focused on how Mr. Harrigan is kind of. Um, I would say has a lot of personalities. They keep saying, well, you know, in one way, but there's a lot of different sides to Mr. Harrigan. I would say Mm -hmm. it's the theme. Um, The life of Chuck is uh, essentially, uh, I I won't get too deep because we'll go over them later on, but essentially about a man um, dying and all of the, uh, everything inside him, his brain, his cells kind of turning off and the world that that is, how he has many people. Um, and literally one of the acts is I Contain Multitudes is the title. Um, mm-hmm. If It Bleeds is about a uh, uh, a man who can be 50 people at the same time, change his uh, appearance and, and live through time uh, by, by becoming different people. And Rat is all about... Um, uh, an author who has this story inside of him and all these characters that um, he's struggling to get out and he can't find mm. a way to get them out. So I think as a collection, every single one of these stories, the theme of the story is that we as human beings um, contain multiple people within this and can mm. have many stories. Mm. We're not just any one person. We are many people, just like um, like the uh, bad guy, and if it leads, can change into many people. Mister mm. Harrington's phone connects him to this world that he didn't know existed of the internet, with all of these people giving advice. Things. The life of Chuck is kind of the most literal. It's just a metaphor for an entire world inside someone's head. And then Rad is kind of the creative side of saying, "I have this Western story and all these characters that I need to express." Um, I don't know. That's my first big theory hmm. is that's how they're connected. I'm into it. I'm into it. Yeah, no, th- that tracks, especially with you m- mentioning the 
the offhand reference of of Mr. Harrigan being because that was the one where I was trying to think think about it. Like, oh, I don't know how how much it fits there, but yeah, you're you're right. There is that mention that it's like you know, as you grow older, you become different too, right? In 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 your youth, and uh, you're a different person at that point. And then you know, Mr. Harrigan's phone comes. The the you know the horror part of it you know is that like this you know he dies and his spirit's kind of tied to this phone and his his like young protege realizes he can essentially unleash this spirit on two people who deserve a, a little revenge <laughs> you know a little yeah. comeuppance and uh, uh, but then that that weirdly we talked about zombies earlier and that's something that maybe we can talk about with Mr. Harrigan's phone because this story isn't a zombie story, but it is, uh, it's not a traditional Romero zombie story, but this kind of reminds me of like the pre Romero zombies where what they were, they were like just cursed undead that, that had to do the bidding of somebody else. Right. Just moaning underground. Yeah. And that, that wasn't, you know, it was all like, you know, voodoo curses and stuff before Romero, uh, you know, sprinkled his, his magic dust and completely changed what, you know, the public's perception of what zombies are. Uh, but Mr. Harrigan's phone's very much that way. And and I think by the end of it, uh, you know, his young protege, like, kind of realizes that that this, you know, that this guy isn't isn't happy being the revenge spirit and he needs to just yes. like, let him have peace. Right. So. Or- or here, here I'm going to hit you with with a with a real hot take that I think Ooh, helps this it. theory. So, um, I think that the point of that story thematically is that there's there's two Mister Harrigans because when you're seeing it from um from Craig's perspective, uh, Mister Harrigan's really a pretty nice guy. He's he right. helps him out. He's so kind, and then you kind of get these these uh, rumblings from different people who've worked with him that are like, wow, I, I don't know. You, you, he's nice, but you don't want to cross him. Um, right. So I think that, that um, ending hypothesis of Craig is that Mr. Harrington doesn't like hurting these people and he's telling him to stop. That's what yes. he's texting. Yeah. Um, I have a, here's my hypothesis. If you actually look at what he's texting, which are a couple of um, letters, it'll be like um, SSCCC or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think that those are stock tips. And I'm, I, it sounds like I'm joking, but I actually mm. think that um, if you think about it, he texts like AA, like American Airlines. Mm-hmm, um, right. and, and my thought is that actually Mr. Harrington um, isn't, it, it, it seems it's all from Craig's perspective and he he's horrified by these deaths. And the reason he thinks Mr. Harrington, Harrington doesn't want to do it is because he, he sends these messages and he's thinking, but he doesn't really have a lot of evidence. And also Craig only knows him as this nice guy. So, um, and we kind of know that he's, he's not necessarily, he does really like the phone once he gets it. So I thought I, I didn't go back and do this, but I thought, wow, what if um, some of those letters, um, Craig is misinterpreting because Craig is not Mm. ruthless and he's trying to help out Craig and just say, listen, buddy, I'm taking care of these people for you. These stocks I'm connected to the afterlife (laughs) invest in this because he uses his phone to stock trade. Yep. So I, that is my my theory. It's all about him doing trades on his phone, and he's just sending these very interesting, um, just letters, like four letters or two <laughs> letters. So that and is my got, real big swing. 
That's fun. That that's actually really interesting. Yeah, I, I like. We that. Need to like go back and look at what uh, what all the different letters translate to on the stock market for stock yes. symbols. I had a theory that Stephen King would just kind of put that in there and never mention it as a sort mm-hmm. of alternate take and see if maybe 20 years from now buckaroos found it but that that was my initial (laughs) interpretation i think you're probably right especially you know as you pointed out like the whole the the whole um what's the fucking word the whole genesis of him using the phone in the first place is for the stock stuff so it would make perfect sense that's this whole reason he uses every beat of that story is him getting real excited that he can one up someone on the market because he's getting the news faster on his phone. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the the smoking gun on this theory. I think you're right. Yeah, in the author's note at the end of the book, like King talks about how, like he was really fascinated by exploring those early days of the iPhone and 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 uh, and how he his uh, assistant or his uh, tech assistant, who I think is the one that helped set up our our interview, by the way, Scott. No. Um, uh, Jack, right? I think his name was Jack, but he, uh, his tech assistant, like bought him a, a first generation iPhone off of eBay or something. And like, they, it still works, but like, you can't make calls with it anymore. Cause it was on a 2g network and 2g doesn't exist anymore yes, and, yes. Uh, and all this stuff. But he was like, you could still, you know, use it with the internet. And he's like the very, you know, the very first things on all the iPhones were stock, you know, you can hit the stock app and you can text and, and all this stuff. So he's like, it was bare bones, but it, it, it was, and that's something that this story is really fascinating, uh, you know, for, for us, uh, you know, us olds who remember how like kind of revolutionary it was when the oh, iPhone yes. came out and it was unlike anything. Do you guys remember the, like that first year, like seeing the iPhones in the wild for the first time. Yep. And I and remember like, exactly where I was when someone pulled one out. Oh, and wow. it for me. Yeah. It was wild. I had a, I had a friend who was very wealthy. He, uh, he was one of the rooster teeth guys. His name, Bernie, good friend of mine, but you know, he was the guy that was all, you know, he had the money and he was always on the cutting edge of stuff. And we flew together to Seattle for some halo thing. And, uh, where I think we played halo three early and that was our, or whatever and uh and he had just gotten the iphone it had come out like that week and i remember we went out to eat at a restaurant in seattle and the waitress was like kept coming over and was fascinated and like people from other tables were coming over to look at the phone and and all this it was it was crazy it was it was so revolutionary when it happened and uh, using like a fucking nokia razor up to that you know and that that feeling and that time is so um kind of specific and it's also kind of scarily recent in in the grand scheme of things um i feel like this story captures it very well um i I, when reading it i thought the same thing of he just talking about what changes on the iphone and the whole time i was thinking wow yeah that that is they're talking about the it's just very well done as far as the the history of that specific time Mm. This one's getting adapted uh, as a mm-hmm. film for Netflix that's actually coming out very soon. I did hear that, which I, I find interesting. I, I don't, um, I will say, um, I, I like every story in this. That might have been, I think it might have been my least uh, favorite, and I still really liked it out of mm. four. But um, I, it's what's interesting, it's, it's, it's very meditative. There's not a lot of right. truly horrific things. That, when I think of how this would be a horror movie, you, I guess you would show these things that in the story they kind of just talk about. But um, 
it's just it's very interesting how um it's just so meditative i guess that's the best word it doesn't seem you know high intensity Mm. i'm thinking you know my guess is the movie is going to be kind of hearts in atlantis uh hearts in atlantis ish you see that one it's about the young boy and he's you know there's like a a guy running a room at him and his mother's place and he becomes kind of a mentor to the kid and then it turns out this guy's like you know from yes. another world or been mucking around in another world or something and you know but it's not like outwardly horrific it's it's more it's like a dark fantasy kind of thing kind of yeah and, yes. and like you're talking about meditative and and almost uh almost kind of quaint you know in, yes and i i think that they've got john lee hancock directing it it's the guy that directed like the blind side and um Wow, that is uh, surprising! Wow, okay. yeah, yeah, uh, and the and that movie with Tom Hanks where he's Walt Disney—I mm-hmm. forget the name of it—but Saving um, Mr. Oh, Banks, wow. yes. So I kind of feel like, well, that's probably the right director for this if they're doing what I imagine yes. they would do with that it. That actually sounds like kind of a good take on it. I think yeah. that's how it would work, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Donald Sutherland as Mr. Harrigan mm-hmm. and. Uh, Jaden Martell, who was Bill uh, in It. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. that's going to be great. Yeah, I think it, it's Fingers interesting. Crossed. Yeah, I hope it's good. We always yeah. want more good adaptations. Of and, course. Uh, yeah, there's only one other story, and it's the last one that's been optioned, uh, uh, as as we know, and that was uh, mm-hmm. Rat, and Ben Stiller has the option on that. I did see that, that. And, and honestly, as a, as a viewer of um, Severance, I say just give Ben Stiller every single <laughs> no shit. and it, it will just be incredible. So I can get behind that. Yeah, that show was so fucking good. I can't wait for that to come back. Uh, I love yes. it. Although, um, and this might be a good segue into the next story. Uh, yes. Like that severance uh, feel and tone feels a lot more right for the life of Chuck than it does for, mm-hmm. say, something like Rat. Oh, really? Do- yes, yes. Well, I think all four... Um, Maybe with the exception of if it bleeds, uh, but they are all pretty meditative as a thing. It is yeah, the style sure. of them are are very um, kind of subdued in, in a nice way. I, I just I really liked it. Um, and if if we are going to move on to life, I think I can't talk about the life of Chuck without without discussing my my second overall theory. Go for it. Um, and this is the big swing because the life of Chuck is is the most obvious version of, of this. The life of Chuck, I, I found, um, here's something. It, it is written in three acts and mm-hmm. um, they are kind of presented backwards. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I read them the opposite direction. I read oh, them really? in, in order just to see what would happen. Hmm. Um, and um, it really gave me. Um, first of all, I think it's better backwards. Uh, I think mm. either, I, I guess forwards. I don't know how to describe it. the way that I did it, which is wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad I did it that way. It made it really dang a wild story. Um, but um, I, I think that um, to me, even though a character says this isn't about global warming, it seems pretty obvious to me that it that it is using the <laughs> metaphor that it's about global warming mm-hmm. and it seems to basically use um the metaphor of you know this man uh chuck has a uh, you know he 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 is just this one man and inside him his brain is kind of blinking out as he dies and then the other perspective of the story is kind of um i see as all the the parts of his brain this entire world 
um, the stars blinking out as, as he dies and that we all contain these whole worlds. But at the same time, the world as it crumbles, it just really feels like they're talking about global warming and the theme of it. Everyone's talking about how you know something's coming and you're kind of powerless to do anything about right. it. And then all of Act 2 is about, well, I guess we could, should kind of enjoy ourselves. It's just about Chuck having a little dance-off with a girl in the street. Um, so it, it just really seems to be King's thoughts on um, global warming. And, and before, I guess, we could talk about that, but here's where I will make my presentation. Um, <laughs> Do it. And, and I would really love to know your thoughts on this as, as King experts. I have always found... Uh, King, uh, it seems like he writes about his life a lot. Whenever you hear the old stories, oh, miseries about him being, you know, addicted to this and uh, uh, the shinings about him being addicted to that. I guess it's just all about him being addicted to things. But um, really, <laughs> he, he, he seems to write uh, about this thing's going on in my life and that's going to be the metaphor for the story. Um, this collection seemed to me like him stretching out and saying, these are all going to be stories about a message, uh, specifically kind of, uh, I guess, a social justice message, you could say. Mm. Each one, the point of each is not just a meditation on King's life like usual. It seems to have a moral point. And the fact that he wrote this, I think, when Trump uh, was coming up and got, got in office, mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's a coincidence. So to go over my theories, which we could break in, I think that the life of Chuck is, is about global warming. Um, Mr. Harrigan, Harrington's phone, Harrigan's phone, oh my gosh, I can't say it. Mr. Harrigan's <laughs> phone um, is about... Um, is about technology, um, you know, running your lives, Facebook, Twitter, all these things, basically mm -hmm. opening yourself up to that and how that can take you over. If It Bleeds is also a pretty obvious one, which is um, just about, uh, on the surface, about um, these horrible tragedies, uh, school bombings, but it could have easily been a shooting or anything, and how mm -hmm. the media... Uh, kind of laps that up in a critique of the media. And, and if it bleeds, it leads. That's the most obvious one. And then Rat, mm -hmm. I kind of see as a meditation on um, the value that we place on celebrity and success, on, mm. on even people who are perfectly happy with their family, just going along just fine, um, having this ever-present voice saying, you need to be this famous, exceptional person, and how that can right. really drive drive a modern person crazy so within those themes and the time it was released i kind of i feel like this is um stephen king saying okay these are going to be message first stories right. and the, mo the moral of them comes and when i think of his old stuff i couldn't really think of things um where that was the case they're, they're there to entertain you they're there to horrify you and kind of say something about where he was at the time, but they don't really seem to be message based. I love this read on it. That's really fantastic. When I read this book, I'm a very, I'm a very dumb man, Chuck. And so <laughs> when I read this book, I did not, I, 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 my, my take was, well, he had four novellas ready to go and he put them in a book. You know, I yes. couldn't, I didn't, I didn't see any obvious creative tissue, but now that you've laid it out like that, of course, that's what's going on here. It's, well, and if I've, it's, if it's not, then of, go ahead, go ahead. 
I, I think you, I thought about that because I thought, well, he, maybe he's had these lying around since the 80s or something. I don't really know. And, and I think that that is probably true. But I think that his choice to release them at this time, maybe the, the, the collage of them was, was what made this through line. And he thought, oh, these all, but it just, it's so strong. And then my other piece of evidence is I also recently read um, Elevation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes. this that came out kind of in a similar uh, – it's recent. I don't know how close it is to this, but it is a novella length. Mm-hmm. It could have easily been out here, but um, – oh, dang. I'm sorry. For, before I get into elevation and how it relates this, any time interrupt me, I'm rambling. I'm no, 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 no. You're, you're doing a great, great. job. Doing, yeah. Okay. As long, I just got to check in because I'm now I'm really about to blast off into space. Um, <laughs> Much like so the lead ele- character in Elevation. There you go. Okay, dang. What a segue. So Elevation, <laughs> um, it, you could think, oh, dang, maybe this is, maybe this is a, why wasn't Elevation on this if your theory is mm. true? Because it is pretty clearly, um, him discussing uh, LGBTQ issues. That's kind uh-huh, of right. what, what it's all about. But I see Elevation as falling into my previous category of it's actually just Stephen King talking about something in his life. He's not really saying I agree or disagree with this. And I think that the purpose of Elevation, I've seen it kind of, um, uh, I, I won't say maligned, I will say criticized by the queer community because it is a story of kind of this like old, old straight white man coming to town and saving some queer people, which is kind of an old school way of doing this story that the queer voices are not necessarily elevated. I, I understand that criticism, but what I kind of took it as is um, King almost saying kind of passing the baton. I think there's a reason the perspective is from the, is from the man, the the older straight white man, yes, who comes in, and 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 it's a misread. I, I think I think Stephen King is totally aware of the pseudo problematic nature of centering the old white man in this, because what he's trying to do is say, "Hey, this is me. I, I can only write a certain kind of story. I've been doing this for years. I'm kind of this older guy, and now there's this young younger group." Um, coming in and they're telling their stories so in a race which literally happens in the book we're all running this race and i'm gonna do what i can to help i can pass this baton and then uh once i help you up um i almost i i think it's time for me to say goodbye and say this isn't my race anymore i don't really know what's going on over here i'm gonna help you <laughs> and i'm gonna float away right um, yes and you yeah know, just building off the point you made putting a cherry on top of the Sunday you just created yes. for us. I also think in addition to everything you just said that elevation also represents King sort of grappling with some of the tin eared or problematic material he wrote earlier in his career where he was incorporated whenever a gay character would appear, you know, yes, yes. he was very, Absolutely. very clumsy with race and, and gay folks. And, you know, uh, as as a lot of people were during that time you know and here yes. we're talking about late 70s early 80s you know up until the 90s really you know he he was pretty clunky with that shit and if you're going to talk Stephen King you've got to acknowledge that you know he uh was not exactly killing it back then yeah and I, yes. and, no, I, I, yeah. and so to your point about him centering that white 
cisgender male character. I think it's it's him saying, you know, this is where I'm at in my life. And this is sort of, you know, not an apology for some of his earlier writing, but sort of a state of the union on like, this is where I'm at now. And I have love in my heart. And it's not, you know, like you're yes, saying, I it, 100% agree. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It, it is not an apology. It's a, it, you are right. You said a state of the union. I looked at it like it, it wasn't him. It's not him retiring, no, but no. it is him. But you notice the character, unlike something like thinner, the character in this, uh, which is such an easily comparable story, does not fight against it. There's no right. point when he cares. He doesn't care at all. He The character says, well, my time is up and this town's changing and uh, I'm going to help you out and then we're going to really love each other for a while, have some nice dinners, and then I'm going to float away and say goodbye. And it's kind of a celebratory. So it is kind of – it's a retirement story, but thematically for his life, I see it as him kind of saying, listen, this isn't my world and I'm just going to have to be okay with that and I can write my kind of stories and I hope that's okay with you guys and I really care about it and, and I respect it. But I just got to kind of float away and I'm going to write my little stories over here. Right. And so to combine that with the timing of that and when If It Bleeds comes out, I feel like these are connected stories in the sense of he has said that with elevation. And he says, "Okay, I'm going. Here's going to be my swing at a sort of a social justice collection. Mm. And then Mm. and then I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to go back to writing my stuff. And uh, that elevation is kind of the setup for if it bleeds to to be his farewell in that way to say, well, here's me saying some messages about global warming and this and that. And I'm going to put this out when Trump's coming up because it feels right. And then I'm going to get back to uh, writing fairy tale or, or whatever. <laughs> right. Well, that uh, I think we're all in agreement on this. Yes. So far. Yeah. Yeah. That, wow, talk about I'm glad because that, that was a that was a big swing. I've been thinking about it ever since I read it and I couldn't wait to present it to you. Uh because right. <laughs> I think you would know better than I would. You could have said, Well, there's this one, but even like mm. I said, even elevation, it seems like it sh- it would be his kind of social ju- like his message story. He's trying to say something about the sure. queer community or something, but he's really not at all. And I think that's where people misread it. He, it's right. just it's the same as him writing misery uh, about himself. It's right. It, he's the character and he's just saying, listen, this is how I react to this. Role. I don't really know how to. So I'm just going to float away and you guys have fun. Um, so, I, you know, it, it just uh, and I think maybe that's why I like if it bleeds, because as a writer, um, I, a lot of writers, you know, they talk, do you have character or plot lead? Um, for me, I have kind of a rare thing where I, I think of the message first. I always mm. think. What do I want to say with this? What's the point? If the reader reads it, um, what what am I – I can entertain you the whole time. That's very important. But I also want the reader to think, wow, that has really opened my eyes to something. Or I didn't realize that or deliver some kind of a message. And I don't, I don't see Stephen King doing that very often. But every story, if it bleeds, seemed to have that at its core. That's right, folks. It's time for the mid-roll ad read. Once again, sponsored by uh, two different companies, the first of which I will be telling you about. And that's our friends over at 
Athletic Greens. We use Athletic Green products literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking them because, quite frankly, I need them. Lots of people obviously take some sort of multivitamin, but it's important that you choose one with high-quality ingredients. That would be Athletic Greens. This stuff doesn't taste like it's super healthy. In fact, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to every morning. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is something I certainly need while recording this show. Also, just for the record, it is recommended by pro athletes, not just pudgy podcast hosts. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's cheaper than purchasing all the separate ingredients yourself and all for less than $3 a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time, boom, you're done. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel bags with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Excellent. Well done, Scott. Thank you. Yeah, so I have the pleasure of telling you about an Abrams book release of none other than Clive Barker's Dark Worlds. That's right. We get to pimp a Clive Barker-related book. How rad is that? Way more rad than pimping a Dean Koontz book. (laughs) By about a million percent, for sure. The original master of horror finally brings fans into his inner thoughts and workings in the book Decades in the Making, Clive Barker's Dark Worlds. Throwing open the doors to his production sketches, paintings, photos, and manuscripts, Dark Worlds shows the earliest sketches of Pinhead from the original Hellraiser and the creative process behind Candyman to the magical world of Aberat. All of it is here alongside comments over the years from people like Stephen King, Obbs, Neil Gaiman, Quentin Tarantino, Wes Craven, and more. Go to abramsbooks.com slash Barker. That's A-B-R-A-M-S books dot com slash Barker and enter in the promo code Clive 25 to receive 25% off this really rad sounding book. Clive 25. That's easy to remember. Very, very easy. Super easy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, with all of that said, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I have no I have no notes on your theory other than to say that I think it's a great one. You know, like wow, I told you, you know, you, you've, you've said a couple of times, like we're the experts. I want to be very clear and speaking only <laughs> for myself, I am not an expert. I've read a lot of Stephen King and I can carry on a conversation about it, but you sure, know, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not always quick on the uptake. Here's a great example of this. Uh, did you read Under the Dome? I did not. Um, okay. How is that? It's very big. Oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's a commitment. It's, it's, you know, the stand sized. But yes. um, I loved Under the Dome up until maybe the final hundred pages. And then I felt oh, like wow. the ending just like completely whiffed it and really held that against the book for a long time. You know, I, I watched oh, wow. some of the show okay. when it was on, but I was also like, if that's where this is headed, then I don't want any anything to do with this. But then we had um, uh, one of our listeners and and another another guy who's really into Stephen King by the name of Zach Dion on the show once um, to talk about. He was basically defending Under the Dome because he knew that Eric and I both had issues with it. Yes. And he pointed out that 
I'm, I'm trying to think of how to describe this without spoiling it since you haven't read it. But he, he essentially That's he hard point, on this show. He, when I was he, listening, I thought, how do you do this? It's it's tough. <laughs> well, we don't often. <laughs> yeah, we, we just we give up just and say, cover your ears. I will say, yeah. I will say, I am uh, for the listeners. If you don't want to spoil it for them, you can spoil it for Chuck because we're we're going deep. And I don't. I think that one is so dang big. I don't think I'm gonna gonna get around okay. to it. I, well, I'm gonna be honest. The whole book, you know, is set you know in this little town that's got a, a dome over it. The question is, where did the dome come from? Why is this happening? And how do we get these people out? Right. So. Yeah. You know, now you've got an entire small town trapped in this thing, and very quickly it devolves into like borderline Lord of the Flies style shit, where there's power okay. grabs happening from people in town, and you know, uh, uh, there's like a, this fucking guy named Big Jim, and he's got his little henchman. He's running a meth lab on the side over here, which is creates some problems over the course of the novel. Oh boy! And, you know, um, it's all about how people in positions of of power sort of abuse that. And then at the very yes. end, you find out that basically the dome is this toy that these alien children have have come across. And it, well, it does right what it says on the tin. It fucking puts whatever's underneath it under this dome. Right. And yes. so the one of the lead characters finds herself in telepathic communication with these alien children. And okay, yes. appeals to them to just let them out like they're they don't realize what they're doing and they're, you know, abusing their power and such. And the alien children show mercy and remove the dome. And it just felt like such a pat ending. It felt like, you know, a, a real deus ex machina sort of thing. Yes. That I, I, for a book that long, that would yeah. be right. very frustrating. Yes, but. The uh, Zach, our friend who came on the show, was like, here's the thing. The whole book is about bullying. And that's what this ending is about. You know, it's oh, about, okay. you know, not being a bully and appealing to not even the humanity of these things because they're not human. But yes. it's 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 all in line with the theme. And once he said that, it kind of unlocked the entire book for me. And I was like, holy shit. Like, how did I not piece this together? That's obviously what happened here. And um. So that's what I mean wow. by I'm not too quick on the uptake. So I, I again, I read I read uh, if it bleeds and did not. I, I never would have put this together, but I think you're, wow. you're very. This, right. I, I think well, also um, for listeners and you all, I, uh, old Chuck is on the uh, autism spectrum. So part of my way is I just when it comes to art. I dissect every little tiny. Th I, I am so logical in the way that I um, interact with um, art, which I think generally is a very um, uh, kind of it washes over uh, Buckaroos and, and it's kind of creative in this sort of way. And, and, and I do see it in a creative way, but part of the way that I look at things is, is so um, kind of segmented and, and very logical. I just section everything out. So sometimes I see more than is really there. But um, it does make uh, it does make things interesting. I will say that. So I could be completely wrong on my theory, but uh, you know, it's it, at least it's it's a fun exercise. I will yeah. say. Yeah, I will. Well, I, I will. The thing is, go ahead. I was gonna say there's there's no. That's the great thing about King stuff is he's such a populist writer that yes. that there is depth to it, and whether or not he intended it to be fit into your theory or not doesn't really matter. 
you know, uh, yes. and we, we've run across that with all of our Brian Fuller episodes where, you know, I don't think King intended Christine to be a trans allegory, but when yes. Brian Fuller brings his queer, you know, perspective and queer readings and his experience with the trans community, uh, you know, with his friends and, and whatnot to this, you know, to this book, you know, that's kind of the fun of picking apart these these titles so like that's that's the dirty secret is you don't have there is no right or wrong answer here is you know it's that's true what what you've done very well is kind of underline you know why you're able to read it this way and why you think you know that thematically they all fit together and it all tracks for me so yes yes so that brings us to the third story in this book the titular if it bleeds do you want to explain the uh the plot of if it bleeds for for anyone who's not read it chuck um, well, I, I will say, uh, so it is a sequel to The Outsider, I, mm-hmm. I, uh, and it is uh, Holly Gibney um, coming up against, I would say, a uh, a different, they, they describe it as like how uh, dogs, there are different breeds of dogs mm-hmm. uh, with different features, a kind of a different version of uh, the creature encountered in, in The Outsider that can uh, change shape much faster uh, and has... Um, uh, gotten into the habit of um, creating uh, or starting the habit of creating news tragedies. So um, I, in this case, a school bombing, but also uh, kind of links it back to the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, right. the, to uh, pretty much any, uh, I think there's some 9-11 stuff. Um, and, and that this uh, reporter has at least been on the scene kind of drinking the uh, grief of uh of any who are around this tragedy and has kind of gotten bored and is making his own uh big there aren't big enough tragedy. tragedies so he's he's making his yeah, own yeah he's he's very hungry so um <laughs> I, and and uh, I would say that uh, that uh, this one is pretty dang this is the most obvious of kind of the messages is, is right. it, uh if it bleeds it it leads is the the kind of uh, story with the news. Uh, you could think of, I don't know if you've seen film Nightcrawler. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, oh, pretty yeah. Good, pretty good analysis, I think, of what If It Bleeds is also saying that it's just kind of not healthy to uh, to kind of promote uh, uh, real tragedy. violence on tragedy at that level, uh, non-fictional tragedy. And to, to, um, I think that, honestly, he is, uh, uh, Ondowski is the reporter. Ondowski is... Um, kind of sucking the uh the grief uh like a vampire but um but that uh, there's a sort of wink that we are all kind of sucking out the grief from these uh from these situations uh and so i think it's just uh about responsible media coverage really which you know for the time this was released is also a very important um, thing I, I had a question um for for you two i loved the outsider but um i did not read it i just watched the the show so mm. i don't know how i don't know how different it is um and i'm curious just what your thoughts on the outsider are and and or compared to if it mm. reads eric it's pretty damn close the outsider adaptation is it's not a, a obviously a one to one you can't really do that um but yes. it's it's not like uh say the shining where they take a lot of liberties on point of view or, you know, intent with character or whatever that, you know, my, my memory of, of the book of the outsider is very similar to the tone and feel. And mm-hmm. uh, wow. I, th- I think the, um, uh, shit, what's his name? The, uh, uh, the, the cop character, 
Oh, yes. Um, I forgot his name. I forgot his name. Ralph? Oh, Ralph. Ralph, Ralph yes. yes. You know, I think he was a little, I felt he was a little bit more on the forefront uh, in terms of perspective in the book, where, whereas in the series, like you, you know, there are whole episodes that jump to stuff that he's not seeing. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, yes. So I, I, I think that maybe that's the most, the, the most where it departs. But even then it's like, that still happens in the book. It's just not as uh, obvious. You know, it's not as jarring, I guess, to me. Okay. Um how it compares to if it bleeds. Yeah. I mean, listen, if the, I would be psyched, honestly, if Jason Bateman and his team came and said, you know what, we're going to do a, a oh follow up with, with the exact same crew, the exact same feel, um, uh, you I know, bring back, that. was it uh, Cynthia Erivo? Is that right? Who played Holly? It's like, yes. you know, bring her back and, you know, have like a three episode miniseries that, that just does, if it bleeds, I, I would, I would be over the moon. I, you know, I don't know if there's even a, a path or a precedent for doing something like that at HBO, but like if they did that, I would be super psyched um, because yes. it is, it's such a great fun read this is of all the stories, like Mr. Harrigan's phone kind of feels like one you would have read in skeleton crew or whatever, but if it bleeds, like feels like, you know, kind of King now on firing oh, yeah. on his cylinders, right. Where it's Absolutely. just, you know, it's just him telling a yarn and, you know, introducing a new, you know, kind of Ilkakui, you know, type character from from uh, uh, The Outsider. And by doing that, it opens up the world of The Outsider in a way because that book, you know, ends with, you know, them destroying that creature. But that creature essentially, you know, letting them know that there are others like like it out there. Yes. And he's been searching for it, that they're rare and they hide themselves, you know, and that's part of their, you know, their survival mechanism. Um, but you know, the fact that, uh, that Holly's able to pick up on another one, like there could be, you know, if King, you know, wanted to spend, you know, the next 20 years writing about Holly hunting down, uh, various outsiders, he could, you know? Yes. And I would, I would read it because I, honestly, this is, that was definitely my favorite. Um, it was my favorite one. I really like, um, I, here's another thing about the the um, show versus the book, and I I don't know um, uh, how much you uh, might recognize this, but um uh, I really like Holly Gibney as a character, mm-hmm. and, and what I liked is when I was watching the show, um, she is clearly played on the show as a on the autism spectrum, right? Uh, and so so I really like that. Um, I just love to see um, characters that are autistic. Uh, well, I'd, I'd and- love for you to actually like talk a little bit about that because yeah. the show received a little heat for it because there was a, I know a lot of people um, that were, you know, uh, autism advocates, you know, are, are, were tired of the quote unquote autism superpowers, you know, that every time sure, yes. we see that in, in a movie, it's rain man or it's, you know, or it's her yes, where, you yes, know, yes, yes. you know, it's Holly where she, her, her, uh, autism gives her a, a special power versus, well, I can, you know, the, I that's definitely whatever. think I can talk on that. I guess my first question before getting into it is, um, in the book, um, is, is she, uh, autistic? Because what's interesting is, um, when I was reading If It mm. Bleeds, I thought, oh, um, Holly does not really seem autistic in the writing. And and in the show, is, is, it seems very clearly played that way. So I, I wasn't sure if that was a change no. for the show or not. It is. mentioned in the, in the book. Okay. It is. She, she's, she's OCD in the uh, Bill Hodges trilogies. So, like, she has obsessive okay. compulsive disorder. Um, yes. So So I guess she's she's 
somewhere on the spectrum, but she's not. Yeah, she's she's Maybe she's I'm more of like the old the the like the pre now version of the autistic spectrum where it's like Jack Nicholson yes. and you know and uh, uh, fuck I'm losing all my my titles today. What's the as good as it gets? You know, yes. where that's that's kind of the way that that it was presented. You know, back in the day. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you, they, they definitely put her more on a recognizable autism spectrum in the show than than. Um, yes, the, uh, I, it seems like they books. all but say it. They, it is very. Yeah. They walk up to that line and and then don't. But um, to to answer your question, um, I I think that first of all, I just there is. I think there are buckaroos. Uh, you know, it, it is a spectrum, so I can't speak for that whole dang autistic right, community. Right, right. Certainly, um, for I, I understand uh, actually when when buckaroos do not like certain types of representation. I am pretty um, open in that sense of I just kind of am still at the point where I'm still appreciating it a lot, just because <laughs> I, I didn't, I haven't seen it a lot. And when I see an autistic character, which there are a lot more now. Uh, I just I, my dang heart. I get butterflies in my heart, and it makes me want to cry <laughs> with happiness. So that 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 is generally where I'm coming to these things. I, I should maybe uh, put on my uh, uh, my skepticism visors a little bit more and look at these in, in a more uh, uh, critical way. But in general, I'm just so excited that it, it that's just where I'm coming from with um with Holly on the show. Um, I think that I I would have to rewatch. I'm talking off the the cuff. If anyone's listening, sorry if I misspeak. Don't don't pick apart my words because I can't exactly remember. But I would say that her autism on in the the uh, show does not seem like a superpower to me. She has superpowers that seem separate from that um, because it's Stephen King and he just loves to basically give. 80% of his characters have some version of the shining. It is the, this, this trope. <laughs> yeah. Every I've made the joke before that um, if, if you are 14 and under in a Stephen King book, you are psychic. It, it is just this yeah, right. thing that happens to every, everyone. And, and so I feel like Holly's analysis of thing, if it, if it is painted as, kind of semi-supernatural. I would not see that as a function of her um, being autistic. I would see it as a function of that is just the most common Stephen King trope is to give people mm. a little bit of psychic a bit. Every There's a thing um, uh, in uh, kind of writing and screenwriting called double mumbo jumbo sometimes where it's, <laughs> you know, if, if you write about werewolves, you can't also have aliens show up. And if you, you know, you got to pick one, one super thing, one paranormal thing. Mm. And Stephen King breaks this regularly so much so that I don't even mind, which is that it can be a story about aliens. And then suddenly one of your characters is also psychic. Stephen King Mm -hmm. just has this thing where every book, it's a monster and a psychic person. So I I don't really mind that much. Right. I think that's a pretty healthy way of looking at it. Now, I before we leave the if it bleeds segment, I do want to talk a little bit about the the commentary that we we've talked a little bit about how it's you know King kind of talking about not only the media's focus on this, but like kind of our own voyeuristic. You know, it's the slowing down and looking at a car accident. You know, thing. Yes, yes, absolutely. We all fucking do it. It's like there's just an human instinctual urge. I'll never. 
you know, forget being glued to the television on nine 11. You know, I didn't yes. want to see people throwing oh, themselves wow. off of a top of a building, but I couldn't yes. look away. Like there, there's something innately magnetic about tragedy that's unfolding in real time. And in, which is why I think it's really fascinating, you know, how he's, uh, you know, uh, putting the outsider kind of character, um, into that news person role because it is important that news is there. It's important during like the the uh, the violent George uh, Floyd protests and the violence from the police. You know, like yes. I, I didn't want to see them beating beating up protesters, but you know, I had a similar thing to like watching the nine eleven you know footage unfolding. You know, as it was yes. happening, yeah, well, I, I just a... couldn't not. I, I don't even have news anymore. Like I had to seek it out, but I I was drawn to it because I wanted to know what was going on, and I also kind of didn't want it to be something where I just passively ignored, you know, an injustice. You know what I mean? I, it, it's weird because it, you right. know, obviously me watching, it doesn't help anybody on the ground, but the, it also felt, I felt guilty not watching it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a really bizarre human informed. thing. Yeah. You got to stay informed, but also, um, you know, if the media is doing this because it sells, um, we are the ones buying it. So um, right. you are right. And there, there is a balance there. And also with timing, you know, you hear things with, uh, with old Trump now that, um, uh, wow. Well, um, if he, he was covered a lot by the media during, before he was yeah, elected, right. he was all over the place. And now, um, we can look back at that and say, well, th- this sensationalist in the stories, uh, in the media, um, maybe that is uh, kind of the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this is a theme that Stephen King hits on a lot. I mean, this is the running man, you know, he loves yes. to take, to take the, you know, uh, it's not in a scolding way, but he loves to point out that, you know, humanity has voyeuristic tendencies. It's the long walk. It's the running man. You know, it's, uh, yes. if it bleeds, it's like, if there's, if there's a blood sport going on, we want to watch it. You know, it's like yes, there's, there yes. is something about, you know, the human fascination with tragedy and grief and we want to avoid it at all costs, you know, but we're also drawn to it. it it's it's a really interesting part about humanity that King, I think, seems to, you know, uh, default to toying with, you know, a lot in his work. Yes, yes. Which um, I suppose that brings us to the final story, Rat. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the one we name checked earlier is the, uh, the title that Ben Stiller optioned and, uh, is, uh, last we heard, uh, intends to produce star and direct. Yeah. Um, also Darren, Darren Aronofsky also, uh, got the rights to the life of Chuck, right? Yes. Oh, um, wow. we forgot, production forgot that company wow, and that's pretty wild. Yeah. And he's supposed to produce, I, I can't imagine I don't imagine. I can't. I just can't imagine a Life of Chuck movie working. I bet it would be really would interesting be, to watch, but yes, it would be very experimental. I, honestly, right. someone like Darren Aronofsky is kind of the only way I could see it going. Um, yeah, in a sort of a tree of was it Tree of Life or no, the Fountain? What am I thinking of? Yeah, I don't know. Mountain. But um, yes, it kind of multiple stories overlapping. Um taking them in this vast perspective and then realizing that that's a, a version of a small perspective. Sure. Of course, it's also worth pointing out that like every time Stephen King publishes something, it's going to get optioned. 
by somebody. So yes. who knows if these movies are actually going to get made. But um, Rat does Pretty seem much- to lend itself to the most straightforward sort of outside of if it bleeds. Uh, huh. The most straightforward King adaptation here. I can I can see how you would make this into a. I could see it being. I don't think I could. I'm kind of surprised by the the movie. I could see it being an episode of like a dang anthology, <laughs> right? Uh, because honestly, really, not much happens in this <laughs> uh, this story. It is mm. a very simple setup, and then and then it happens. I mean, the the length of it is for the elevation. We have to believe that. Um, that things would get so bad. Well, I guess, should I, um, my theory of it, if I'm going to yes. just jump in, uh, is, you know, we have, a, a, a Drew is his name. Drew is um, try, trying to write this book. He's written short stories and he goes out to a cabin uh, to do this. And his family the whole time is kind of giving him a, a pretty heavy, I don't know if you can handle this. He, clearly has some obsessive problems about things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most of the story is the weather getting badder and him getting sicker in a way that doesn't have really anything to do with the <laughs> story other than be kind of a, a metaphor. Uh, the, the whole thing is pretty metaphorical to say, like I was saying with my initial theory, he has a sickness that is, I need to be a success. I need to be mm-hmm. a big artist. And that um, becomes, uh, that starts to destroy him with the weather destroying the cabin. It starts to destroy him where he just gets sicker and sicker and sicker. Uh, and then finally, um, you know, he's he's putting his, his family on the back burner, uh, mm-hmm. not listening to anything they say. And finally, he strikes a, a deal with this rat that um, he will exchange uh, the life of someone to write this novel and he agrees to it. Um, so really, that whole thing is kind of just um, we're taking time to wear him down so we believe he would accept this awful bargain. And then he does. Uh, and then uh, and then kind of that is the end of the story as it comes mm. to fruition. Um, but um, I do see it as being the point being that, um, you know, it just it can wear you down um, this need to succeed. Uh, and that it will, you'll put your family uh, at risk if you do that is kind of what it's saying. But um, I don't know. I feel like plot beats, there's not much there. That, that is all I could say. My guess is that if if I were adapting this, I would I would change one detail in that instead of one of the loved ones dying, it's like three. And so, oh, you know, yes. by midway through the movie, you've gotten to the point where he's made the deal with the rat and he goes home and then people start dying and, you know, it's sort of padded out with like him trying trying, to undo tr- it. Yeah. Trying to undo it or prevent other ones, you know? Mm. And mm, I can yes. imagine it even go, like taking on like a final destination tone where it's like, yeah, you know, he's yes, hanging okay. out with somebody and, Oh, they almost stepped into the street and he had to save him. And now he has to wonder, did, was that oh, person yeah, supposed he to doesn't die? know He doesn't know who it's going to be. Correct. Or does right. he, no, he does. No, because he's he sick, does, right? but but it but it turns out, yeah, it's like a, a a teacher mentor kind of character who has pancreatic cancer, and he's just <laughs> like, well, <laughs> that person's fine. But like when that person ends up dying, it's uh, like his wife dies with him, and, and they die in a car wreck, not because of yes, cancer and all that. Yes, so, yes. But I mean, I think that the whole point of the story, to me, you know, and I just read it yesterday, so it's super fresh in my mind. Doesn't mean I'm right on this, by the way. Just means that uh, this is my my fresh takeaway. Um, yes. Was 
especially by the end, uh, a big point of the story is about uh, vagueness, right? Um, so his story okay, that he's writing yeah. ends on a vague note where did like it was that did the 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 hero of the story get killed or not right and yes, and that's what yes. everybody that in all the correspondence we see is like oh what happened what happened what happened i think the reason why he's they that he makes him sick the king makes um the character sick he catches a, a flu from from a an old codger who's not covering his mouth or masking up by the way, Um, you know, uh, he catches the flu uh, as he's writing and with over days, his flu gets worse and worse and worse. Um, And I think you're meant to question whether or not the rat is real or if that was like a flu Mm -hmm. hallucination. Right. Because this isn't one. This isn't the story I thought it was going to be when I heard the title rat and thought Stephen King and was reading about this guy going to an isolated cabin. I'm like, oh, we're getting some graveyard shift shit here. It's going to be a man versus rat story. Uh, But what it is, is he shows kindness to a hurt rat. Like there's a storm, a tree knocks into the shed, destroys the shed. And he hears scratching at the door and there's like this broken rat and he has to decide, am I going to kill it, put it out of its misery or bring it inside and let it die in in the warm, you know, the warmth of the thing. And he brings it inside. Uh, And as is, you know, then, you know, the, he wakes up and, and the, the rat, you know, is there and it talks to him and it makes a deal says, you showed me kindness. So I'm going to help you finish your book, which you've never done. This is your life's ambition. You've only done short stories uh, and you're having trouble now. He's having trouble. He gets halfway through and starts failing. And it's also worth pointing out that there's a lot of shining uh, parallels here with this author as well. And uh, I was getting like, this this is almost a sister story to the shining where you're uh, uh, seeing drew uh, in that kind of Jack Torrance mold where, you know, he's this frustrated academic. He's a teacher, you know, who thinks he has it in him and he knows he has it in him, but just can't make that step. Right. Um, So it's his greatest wish to finish this book and it's starting to fail. And this is, he views it as one shot. The last time he, he almost finished a book, you know, he, he, it broke him. Like he set it on fire and almost burned down the house. And like, so that's why everybody's worried about it. So my, my, my the whole thing is is whether or not that deal with the devil or the deal with the rat in this case was uh, a fever dream or just like him and just him like kind of talking to himself and you know uh being able to find it within himself to finish this book um yes. and so much so that like there's even like a rat toy that that they he finds that it's like is this what i thought was the right thing well, so i think that you, yeah what do you think what do you, uh, do you uh, i guess uh, as a personal as a personal question, what do mm. both of you do? You think what do you think the rat is? Do you think it is a, a some kind of a demon? Do you think it is his in his head, and he is he finds a coincidence in this car wreck? Mm. Um, I you know what I I can see both things being real that it's a supernatural thing that he doesn't strike this Faustian deal knowing full well that these kind of deals uh, uh always uh and you know poorly monkey paul you know style yes. um he's he strikes it and uh you know because one of the important things is he said he says and this is something i really like about it is when the rat says somebody you know will die uh but uh you will finish your book like will you make this deal and he's like well i wouldn't do it if there's any danger of my wife or kids he's like and and that's something that I, you know, if they do adapt it, you know, and they kind of, you know, I like Scott's take on it, but like one thing I really like about the character is that he would, no matter what, even 
this being his life's ambition and he would feel incomplete without doing it, he wouldn't put his family at that risk. Right. Wow. And, and, and the rat promises hmm. that he says, he says, no, it'll be somebody he's like perhaps this teacher who you just met, you met up with again. And he looks like he's on death's doorstep. He's have pancreatic cancer, which has a very, you know, they caught it early, but you know, that has a huge, very high mort- mortality wow. rate. And so he's like, well, somebody who's dying already, you know, you know, why not? Um, and then the fact that there's collateral damage with that death where it's not just as simple, he was getting right. better, he was surviving. And then his wife dies. Like to me, that makes a moral complexity. I like it more, honestly, you know, and I'm not usually this way. I'm usually like, give me the supernatural shit that like that, you know, I'm, I, you know, I like that stuff more, but I kind of like the story more as a, um, him arguing with himself because the last time he sees the rat, he, he says, he says goodbye to the cabin. Like he probably gets his book. He gets it published. He gets some money. He goes by, he's going to sell the cabin. Um, he goes back and says a goodbye. He picks up his dad's watch or whatever that he had there. And, uh, um, and he gets visited by the rat one more time. And the last thing the rat tells him is, oh, you didn't write the second half of this thing, which is what everybody always talks about. They always talk about the ending, not the beginning, right? Yes. Uh, you didn't actually do that. I did. So even your win isn't yours. It's mine. And which is something that is so much of an imposter syndrome thing that anybody who's had any success doing anything feels at, at any time. It's like, well, it wasn't really me. You know, it yes, was yes, it was yes. the situation. It was the people around me. It was my support system. It was, you know, it was me being lucky. It wasn't really my talent that did this. And the fact, you know, reading that as the rat saying, saying that as the nagging voice, you know, in the back of his head, to me, fits much more with uh, uh, with the character. So I, I kind of lean on the uh, on the it was all in his his mind, Sitch, even though I normally really love to to just take it at, take the supernatural stuff at face value. Yeah, I man, I I took it at face value, but now I think you've changed my mind. Yeah. Cuz you're right I, on I, all of that. Uh, I I kind of uh, I I kind of I actually agree. I think I think the rats probably not real. Um and I just um but I want it to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to make a deal with the rat. Right. Yeah, I I, I just what put this story actually I, I mean the thing I like this could be a pretty um I would say kind of a stock story. Uh like you said, it's similar to the shining, but also I, I think others than Stephen King could have written this. Uh but what actually puts it over the top and what makes me really like it is I really like the rat. I, I love the dialogue <laughs> of the rat. Um, I think it's just really clever. And um, one of uh, something that um, King does very well uh, sometimes, I really like his um, talkative villains. Uh, sometimes they don't really say much, but um, that's another, I really like um, Ondowski and If It Bleeds. Just incredible, sinister dialogue. And it's such a cool character. Um, and the rat is the same. There is a very limited interactions, but there's just something about the rat that I think is um, really clever uh, presentation that kind of puts it over the top for me. So I want the rat to be real, but I, I probably isn't. Chuck, what would a rat have to offer you in exchange for taking <laughs> oh, that deal? Oh, dang. Well, I can't remember the specifics, but when we were laying it out, whether it was real or not, I kept thinking, well, of course you take the deal. He's going to die eventually. And it, like, if the deal is just, he'll die. I say, well, bud, he, that, g- guess what rat? We're all going to die. So 
Um, it kind of <laughs> right. makes uh, makes sense. But um, if it was a, a an, an unexpected, uh, unfortunate death, gosh, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't think I. I guess I don't think that I could. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm a big softy. Uh, so I really don't, I, unless it was some sort of a train problem where you, do you pull the lever, uh, you mm-hmm. know, to move it onto the tracks and save 20 people? Uh, I, I would probably, the way my logical brain works, I, I would, uh, but, uh, I, I, outside of that, if it was just something for me, uh, I don't think I would ever put myself in front of anyone else for, for anything. I can't think of anything. Yeah, I don't like the uncertainty of the deal. You know, if it were, if we could, yeah. can we attach us? You know, I, I know that he's the rat strongly suggests that it's the the pancreatic cancer guy. But yeah, you gotta bring your lawyer to this. If you can right, bring your right. lawyer, the fine print always get you. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're dealing with a rat for God's sake. So of course, you got to get a lawyer involved. But like the the um. I don't know. I I think I would also feel like suspicious of this deal. You know, it oh, is, yes. it is sort of like making a deal with the devil. And I think that, you know, I would be like, well, the rat says it's this guy with pancreatic cancer. And yes, he is probably going to, you know, cash in his ship soon, but well, here, he could here's be lying. The other, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he could have been, I mean, here's the other twist on it. Now that you're saying it, um, I guess the reason I would have never taken this specific deal too is, um, I, I very strongly believe that old uh, Drew could have written the book without the rat. Uh, you know, he, he's taking a shortcut, but um, I don't think it's really, we're assuming he could never write this novel on his own. And that I think his biggest problem was uh, confidence. I, I don't yeah. see why he couldn't have written this novel without a rat. No, for sure. I mean, that's why he's getting in his own way. And that's, that's why I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this is him dealing with that and you know dealing with himself negotiating with himself in his head in this weird fever dream and when he's revisited by the rat at the end it's not like he walks into the cabin and the rat's there going well how's it going like he goes to sleep and he wakes up and the rat's on him so maybe he's not waking up you know what i mean it's like he's very specifically when when he's that's um, a night that's a night terror too which is a, a scientifically explained thing for sure it's like you know it's uh you know, I don't know. I, I feel like that that's all him negotiating with himself. And, you know, the point is that he had that story, the beginning of the story in him. Of course, he could have found the end of the story. Mm-hmm. And he always he gets in his way. And he just uh, and the way that King describes getting an author getting in his own way, I have to imagine is very autobiographical of like getting caught up. Is the sun glaring or is it staring? Is it, you know, oh, is yes. it, you know, in the just the minutia of like, just fucking write it down, you know, what, whatever it is. Trust me, it's is it flaring? Is it glaring? It doesn't matter, you know, to the reader. Like the reader is going going to get what your intent is, but you know, as yes, a writer, absolutely. I can understand getting caught up on, you know, trying to find those perfect words. Yes. Yeah. Well, that is that is all the stories. And if it bleeds, is there anything <laughs> else we want to discuss about this one as a as a whole before we uh, wrap up? Hmm. Oh, dang. Well, we're we're at hour. We're at hour 40, so if, if you guys want, <laughs> let's let's jump into revival. Let's go. Right, yeah. We're gonna keep on trucking. Yeah. Um one thing I do I did want to point out is that, you know, I, I do like Chuck, that your your unifying theory, one of the reasons I like it is because in the past King has done that with his uh anth- anthology books that collect novellas. So 
different seasons jumps out to me. Each one of those is uh, kind of relating to uh, a particular season, right? So each one there, there is a, a, a through line in that sense. And I think that he does put thought into these novella collections, you know, maybe a little bit more than the short story collections where the short story collections don't have to have a unifying theme, but I feel like whenever he does these novella collections that like, for whatever reason, you know, whether it's this or four past midnight or whatever, there's, there's gotta be something to it that makes sense for him logically as a, an overreaching thing. So I can't say that I have the answers to what all those are about, but I I think that you're onto something that there, he wouldn't just like happen to throw four novellas he had sitting in a drawer in here. You know, I I think of my theory, um, uh, the two theories, uh, and especially based on what you just said, theory number one, that the theme of um, multiple uh, people living inside a single person, I'm about, I'm I'm gonna give that a stamp of I'm a hundred percent sure that's what he was trying to do because they're just the the emphasis on things like I contain multitudes and and just um, multiple faces for Ondowski and this entire world inside like it just I think that's too strong so I I very much think that my theory of um my theory of these stories being King's uh, intentional attempt to uh, collect stories with a social message uh particularly after elevation I, that's i'm like 50 50 i could flip a coin on that i do think it's very possible and i and i enjoy reading it that way but i'm i am maybe not maybe i'm leaning more towards it like 70 30 but i'm not entirely sure with that that one we do appreciate the theories in um yes and this has been a delight is there anything that you want to plug or point people to now that we're at the end of of our run yes well listeners now that you have heard me ramble on about uh about horror stories you can read one of my own uh i I have um a uh new book uh it is a novel coming out uh although i wrote this uh, horror novella this is my first horror novel it is a hardcover coming out on the uh, Nightfire tour, uh, and uh, it is called Camp Damascus, and uh, it is available for uh, pre-order uh, when you are listening to this. And uh, I will say, pre-orders are very important uh, to authors. It is an interesting world. So if uh, you appreciate anything Chuck has said and and want to uh, support uh, support my way as a artist and author. Uh, uh, that would be very kind. Pre-orders are, are very important. And then on social media, like a dang Twitter, or Facebook, or a dang Instagram, uh, Chuck Tingle is uh, is just the way you find me on all those uh, all those different ways. And I'm sure I will have links to the pre-order there as well. But the book is called Camp Damascus, and it is about uh, a gay conversion uh, camp, uh, and it is a possession story. Well, we're excited to check that out. I'm I'm yes. very hyped that you're uh you're going full blown horror on this one and uh pretty bright subject matter um yes and yes. and this was just man Chuck you 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 lived up to your to your own legend here this was fantastic oh, wow. yeah thank you I, I before I I gotta say um I appreciate so much what you are doing with this show I mean it's probably easy to show up and think oh I'm just analyzing a, a, a little piece of media giving some entertainment for buckaroos but um first of all um entertaining buckaroos is very important and and yes. creating this home 
a home for for buds who like horror, um, a, a place to explore these things. Um, both of you, um, I just want to say, not only do you do a good job of it, but it is just such important work. And from bottom of my heart, I, I just I really appreciate it. And and I hope you know that I think there's a lot of buds out there who this this show means so much to them. So I, oh. I, I just want to say thank you. Well, that's very oh. kind of you to say, and and yeah. we truly appreciate that. We, I'm uh, blushing. Thank you so much. Yes, I've got. I'm, I'm at half mast right now. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and crack open a crack open a tingler, and, and there we <laughs> yeah. go. Off to the races. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, thank you again so much. I would love to have you back at some point. You were an excellent oh, guest. I would love it. Excellent. Well, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll keep you abreast of any of our our future endeavors. Uh, I'm Wonderful. sure we will come up with a, a good reason to have you back but thank you so much for being here and uh everyone go check out chuck's stuff and camp damascus love is real many thanks to chuck tingle i know this has been one that you in particular scott were been chomping at the bit for people to hear since we recorded it yes absolutely we recorded this one a while ago and have been waiting for a uh, a specific date to pass so we could we could run it and um Man, he just, I did not know what to expect when we sat down to record this. Uh, neither one of us had ever talked to Chuck before. Um, I had exchanged a number of emails with him leading up to this, which were very Chuck in, uh, emails. You know, you always <laughs> know it when you're talking to Chuck. And uh, I was I was excited to have him on the show, but I really didn't know how it would play out. And um, this is absolutely one of my favorite episodes. Just he he just came in here and killed it. Yeah. It's a definitely big personality tackling a pretty wide ranging topic. No less. It's always brave when a guest chooses a multi-story collection <laughs> to discuss. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. No, I love talking and then, to that guy. And then on top of that, to tie them all together, shut right? your lips. This I know. Is, Chuck is next level. He's just a, he's a real one. Love is real. And, uh, you know, we, we look forward to trotting with him again sometime in the future. For sure. Us and, and our new Buckaroo army. <laughs> yes. Army of Buckaroos. The Buckaroo Battalion. I don't know. We'll come up with a good catchy name for him. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So why don't we talk a little bit about what we got coming up in the, the next uh, week or so. Uh, let's start with the bonus episode. This one's going to be easy to discuss because, well, we've been essentially planning and executing uh, this banger and banger, you know, for the last three or four months. And now it's finally done. But uh, we do have audio uh, for you. So we will be releasing the the live show to our Patreon this Friday. Uh, make sure you that's with us, Mike Flanagan, Kate Siegel. Uh, and the chaos that ensues, you get us talking about it. You get us talking about uh, taking the tours around Bangor. You get us talking about uh, revival. We, we get us, yeah, we talk about revival. Mike kind of shines a little bit of a light on on his take and some things that he changed in his script that Warner Brothers ended up not using. Um, and uh, I and you get to hear from the audience. You get some Q and A. You get some trivia contest in there. There's lots of good stuff. It, it went even better than I thought it it would have been. Yeah, and, it's uh, it's appropriately rowdy for a King cast show. Um, right. it touches on, you know, as Eric pointed out to me after, uh, after the event, like the next day that, you know, you were saying that you felt like it, it felt like an all encompassing King cast episode. It yeah. had a little of a little of everything we do really well, all packed into one thing. And 
you know, entirely unscripted. It just happened to play out that way. So, um, you know, this is one of those uh, things that makes us look smarter than we actually are. Oh, and sure. uh, I will take full credit for that. No problem. Yep. Yep. No, we are indeed that smart. We just play the dummies sometimes. That's totally how I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to uh, play it. Uh, no, but it was wonderful. And you'll get, I think the final file was somewhere in the two hour and five minute range. The uh, the audio text did forget to hit uh, record, by the way, for the very, very beginning. So you're going to miss just the very beginning of the uh, uh, of the show. But we get almost all of it. And uh, yeah, so make sure to listen to it. It's totally worth checking out. If you met, made the journey, it's there, immortalized forever. And if you uh, weren't able to, then you can hear it over at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash thekingcast. Yes. Yeah. You and shouldn't what- sign up just to hear that, folks. We've right. also got dozens upon dozens upon dozens of old episodes that uh, are waiting for you to discover, covering all kinds of uh, nooks and crannies within the, the Stephen King, uh, I don't know, body of work. Plus mm-hmm. commentaries and interviews and all all kinds of stuff. Uh, stop on by the Patreon, sign up for a month, see if you don't like it. Right, we got deep dives on on niche things and books and movies, and then we got stuff that's barely barely tangentially attached to King, but all of it we make sure to 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 have fun with and and make uh, as entertaining as possible. And right Indeed. now, the Patreon's the only place where you can get the finale episode of shelbyville season one so there's also that little carrot and if you've been waiting mm-hmm. to sign up go go do it it's worth it baby we make it worth it for you guys this is true and uh and yeah so next, next week, week next week in the main feed we're just gonna level with you we we've got a we're we're juggling the schedule right now and we are not a hundred percent on who is going to be in that position or what the title is going to be um I'm not going to explain all the reasons why it's fucking I was going to I was going to go down that road, but like we don't need to do that. 20 minutes just later, a, as we yeah, talk, yeah, exactly. this is like going to be the phantom menace of, of outros. We'll yeah, just be it, talking about trade disputes and shit. No, it's maybe return of return of the king of outros with all these false endings. <laughs> we um, <clears throat> yeah, we just don't we aren't 100 percent right now. And so we don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh. You know, look forward to an announcement about what next week's episode is on the KingCast Twitter feed. That's at KingCast19 um, uh, on Monday. That's when you'll find out. That Hell may yeah. be when we find out as well. We'll yeah, just speak. Very possible. We do have episodes banked, so there's there's no world in which you don't get an episode next week. It's just... Right. We got one kind of floating that we really want to plug in there. And so once that locks in, we'll, we'll know for sure what's going on next week. Um... Yeah, I think that's good, Scott. I think we're ready to wrap this sucker up. Yep. Uh, and for anyone, if if you are a patron and you're wondering about, uh, you know, uh, how we felt about the trip or what we got into while we were out there or you want recommendations from Bangor or whatever, um, we are also going to be releasing a bonus episode where we go through all of that. Uh, it'll just be Eric and I. Maybe we'll get your brother in for that one. He was with us the whole fucking time. I don't Ooh, know. Special That's guest, to you. a bonus a, Vespi. A bon- yeah, two Vespies for the price of one. Um, that's <laughs> that's entirely up to you, of course. But uh, I'd be fine with that. Um, it was. It we had a blast. We there's a ton of great stories out of that week we just had. Um, so yeah, we'll be we'll be going through that like from. You know, a bonus episode from our perspective about how it went. So you'll get the live show this week, and then you'll get that the following Friday. So look forward to that. Awesome. 
All right. Yeah. And then next week we will have an episode, a mystery episode for you next week. And uh, that'll do it. That'll All do right, it. folks. Talk to you later. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>